Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine, and thank you for listening to the Captain's Collective Podcast, brought to you by Skinny Water Culture, Hell's Bay Boatworks, and Orvis Fly Fishing. One of the things that I love about what I do is that it leads me to meet interesting people who are knowledgeable, thoughtful, and passionate. And today's guest is no exception. In today's episode, we sit down with Drew Chacon, who is a professional fly tire, author, outdoor photographer, and instructor. Drew has become a well-respected name in the outdoor industry, and when he's not traveling, cooking, or chasing snook in the backwaters of Florida on a stand-up battleboard, he is tying some of the best flies in the industry. In today's podcast, Drew and I sit down to discuss starting a business, tips on managing time, and the importance of slowing down and passing down what you know and love. Drew also shares a powerful memory that he had with his grandfather, who was a game warden in Michigan, and how that has shaped him into who he is today. We hope that you enjoy our time together, and we're grateful for your support. Please continue to share the podcast and help us grow. Your reviews, posts, and word of mouth goes a long way. This is the Captain's Collective. I'll say it's anything you choose, I think it picks you, you know, it's genetic. Let everything else stop in the world and just be quiet. And it's amazing where your mind goes at that point um, and where it doesn't go. And sometimes just that quiet space is, is what we need, and especially in this day and age. You have a fly rod in your hand. It's this tool that takes you to beautiful places. You meet hopefully wonderful people. And it's just this cherry on top of this outdoor adventure. When the fish is coming, that shot within a shot, that timer start. No one else knew anything anyway, and you just might definitely making it up as you're going along. But so what Grandpa and Dad would tell me is like, all right, where's the old big trout laying out there? Where's his shaving cream on the water? Where's he been shaving this morning? Out? So look for his shaving cream on the water, and that's where he's gonna be. Hey, Drew, thanks for taking the time and joining us on the podcast today. I'm excited to sit down and talk with you. I think we talked maybe six months ago about trying to make this happen. And Yeah, sure. It, it's, a, it's my pleasure. I'm glad it finally came to fruition here. It's, uh, it's been a long time coming for sure. Well, I'm excited to dive in and talk some about fly tying. And uh, I got a long list of topics, including gardening and family and stand-up paddleboard fishing. Uh, but before we get into all that, could you just give us a little bit of background about how you first got into the outdoors? And I'd love to hear about how you first got into fly tying as well. And then I know that you made a pretty significant career shift in your mid-20s. I'd love to hear about that piece of your story too, if you could just give us the background. Sure. My grandfather was a game warden and I, uh, I was with him as much as I possibly could fishing. Uh, he got cancer uh, early, so we lost him when I was a little boy, and that's uh, you know part of the reason why I got so into hunting and fishing. But um, my father and my other grandfather were also uh, really into hunting and fishing, and I was with my dad all the time uh, doing that. So that's pretty much how um, I got into it from as early as I can remember. The fly tying, how I got into that, um, my parents started tying, uh, they got married like 19 in upstate New York and they were looking for stuff to do. So they started taking fly tying classes and I found my mother's notes. There was like a green sewing kit with a fly tying, you know, vice in there and a bunch of materials, mm. but a book of my mom's notes. And I found that when I was really young in the basement and kind of read her notes and found some old books. I think um, it was like the Masters of Fly Tying by Art Flick or something that my, my dad had in the basement. So I uh, I just started pulling apart that kit and playing around with it. Um, you know, I couldn't have been much older than five, six, maybe seven years old. Wow. Just tinkering around with that stuff and... Uh, it was just a creative outlet for me why you know the winters in upstate new york are pretty much eight months so i always was looking for stuff to do in um to, to stay busy and that that was a, a a good one for me wow and how did you end up going from upstate new york down to florida and getting involved in the florida saltwater fishing scene well um 
you know, pretty much wherever I went, either vacations or, you know, work or whatever, I was always fishing and fishing for whatever was around. Um, when I was uh, in my 20s, right out of college, I got a job in Cherry Hill, New Jersey as a mortgage broker. And then um, a few years later, they sent me to Florida to open up an operation for the company I was with. And basically, uh, once I got to Florida and uh, and got established here, there was, there was no going back. So that was the transition from upstate New York to New Jersey to, to Florida. And like you said before, I left a significant career. I I owned a mortgage title and real estate company, and I did that for... I don't know, way too long until I had just, you know, pretty much cooked myself, um, drinking 10, 12 cups of coffee a day and, you know, burning the candle at both ends. And when the industry kind of shut down in 2007, I was ready for a change and I wanted to do something that I loved instead of, uh, you know, just going crazy, giving myself a heart attack. So I started in in 2007 writing and um tying flies for some buddies that were guides and it just kind of it took off from there hmm. and um you know you kind of had that circumstance with the crash kind of jolt you into fly tying and writing was there any other options on the table for you or did you know instantly this is something i've done since i was a kid and i want to go for it well it was kind of um, in tandem with a bunch of other things. Fly tying and writing doesn't pay the bills by any means. It's a labor of love. And um, for me, it was working on a bunch of other projects at the same time. I had a few other jobs as this kind of ramped up. But um, after you work for yourself for any length of time, it's hard to go work in the corporate world again and have a boss. So I, I knew that my time was short, you know, on a nine to five gig and I needed to ramp up everything that I was doing to, to, to start salty fly tying and mm -hmm. some of the other stuff that I was doing, hosting trips and books and things like that. Yeah. I was on the phone yesterday with a gentleman, that's up in Utah who hand carves wooden duck decoys. And I ran into his work and what he was doing. And I reached out to him just cause I wanted to talk to him and hear about his craft and how he got started. And I was just curious and I sent him a message. I said, Hey, I, I just, if you ever have time, I'd love just to hear your story because it's really cool the work that you're doing. And he said the same phrase, labor of love. What tips could you give to people who, maybe they're working a full-time job, but they, they want to create some sort of uh, art or they want to start their own fly tie business or they want to do something similar to that. What tips could you give to people on how to successfully start a labor of love and maybe even grow that into a full-fledged business? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think the real thing is you have more time than you think you have. And you need to get really efficient around blocking out time for what's important to you and obviously the other roles and responsibilities you have. But um, for me, it was getting up early. It was staging a bunch of flies the night before, having everything prepped and laid out. So when I did have that time that I could delegate it to a very specific focused task. So you know, I might lay out 50 hooks the night before and 50 sets of dumbbell eyes and have the, the lead eyes all um, lined up in a particular way and the feathers and, you know, two, two three bobbins of the same color. And then, you know, when, when I had that moment, you know, 15, 20 minutes, I would just sit down and hammer out um, small pieces. It wasn't like sitting down and trying to dig through boxes and find all the materials and that stuff takes a lot of time. It was having everything prepped and staged much like cooking, the mise en place, you know, you're cutting up your celery and your carrots and onions and have it all chopped in, in little bowls. And when you're ready to cook it, you just, you know, dump bowls in or measure it out. And mm -hmm. that, that was really what it, what it came down to is stage time being really efficient with time and if, you know, that would be my recommendation for folks that are trying to 
you know, get into fly tying or if you want to write a book, it's the same thing, you know. I guess the saying goes, you can eat an elephant, but you got to do it one bite at a time. Mm -hmm. And writing books for me was the same thing. It was thinking about what, you know, laying out the chapters and then what goes into each chapter and then writing a paragraph at a time or a few sentences. When I first started writing, I, you know, it was like extremely difficult to just sit down and knock a chapter out. So I would record myself talking into my phone or a microphone and just say, you know, here's here's what I'm going to talk about as if I was talking to you or trying to teach somebody. And that was the easiest way for me to get the ideas out of my head. And mm. then, um, then I would listen to it and type those out. And that's why my, my writing style is pretty much true voice. It's, it's not any, you know, thing super fancy. It's just me as if I was talking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I have, uh, one of your books in front of me right now, I have your, your, uh, top saltwater flies for tarpon book and it's really beautifully put together. Um, I'm kind of working through some of the patterns actually right now as we're heading into the summer. And one of the things I really enjoy about it is, you know, there's obviously a million places on the internet that you can find patterns and you can watch videos. But I find that like when I sit down with a book that's analog, it's just much more peaceful and I don't have to pause it and then go back and restart it. I can just kind of look through the instructions and you did a great job of two things I noticed. One was, yeah, you, exactly like you said, you wrote in a way that was really easy to understand and really clear. And then another thing is I really like that you kind of built off of each pattern as you go through the book. You, there's times where you'll reference back to a technique that you kind of, there's a scope and sequence to it, as they'd say in education. Could you just talk to me a little bit about how you came to put these, there's a bonefish, there's a tarpon, and there's a permit in the series. Could you talk to me about how you put all that together and what your thought process was? Yeah, actually, um, Tom Pirro at Wild River Press had um, reached out to me uh, for another book he was working on and um, a bonefish book that was going to be in the series with the uh, uh, passion for tarp and Andy's book and um, the passion for permit John Alch books and they were doing a bonefish book and uh, he said do you have any bonefish pattern step-by-steps done and I said sure you know how many do you need and he said well just send me over what you have and I'll, I'll look at them so I sent him over like 30 or something 20 or 30 step-by-steps and he like immediately responded like how much of this content do you have and I said oh I don't know I've been doing it for <laughs> 10 years and he said well we should do a roll-up series like this is more than one book I mean you have enough content for like three or four um you know would you be interested in that and I said yeah absolutely um it's, it's kind of my like legacy series but I, I have a very specific way I want to do it. I've, I've published a bunch of other books, paperbacks and eBooks, but if I'm going to do kind of my life's work to date, what I really want is a cookbook format. I want a hardcover that spiral bounds what lays flat so you can work from it like a, like a manual, you know, you don't have to have something to hold the book open. Hmm. I want, you know, a lot of pictures that's that's clear i i hate the format where it's kind of a to b b to you know f they you know there's only a picture for one or two of the steps so we had to make the pictures um you know we we basically cropped out all the the background and just did macro shots so every step uh for each of the patterns i want it to be really clear um I think that's the, the one of the most frustrating things for people when they start something new, a new hobby or skill or, you know, art is understanding it at a granular level and being able to see it. So that was, you know, crucial for me. And, you know, I just, I wanted it to be um, in sequence. You know, the first book, the Bonefish book, is kind of the intro it has a lot of the techniques in there and the verbiage and as it, as you progress through the series into tarpon and then permit it gets progressively harder and the techniques kind of layer or build on each other so by the time you get to the, the permit you know book the last chapter of that you can pretty much tie anything mm -hmm. um 
those three books kind of prepare anybody for being effective and even being a, a commercial tire. I mean, I talk a lot about, you know, some of the tricks and techniques to make things more efficient and faster um, th- that I use as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd love to transition a little bit too into talking about fatherhood and family. You know, one of the things that when I think about kind of our conversations leading up to this and then also what I've read and seen of your work is intentionality. It seems like there's a, a reason or a purpose for, for instance, even the fact that you wanted the book to be able to lay flat. That was an intentional decision. You know, you seem like you put a lot of thought into the things that you do. Is that something that you learned from your father or grandfather? Oh, yeah. Um, my, my dad is uh, meticulous when it comes to details. Uh, he's a, a woodworker, and his work and, you know, my, my brother followed in his footsteps in the in the woodworking and making furniture. I mean, their their work is just off the charts compared to what's out there. He he comes down to Florida and just kind of wrings his hands when he's doing a project because he finds all the, you know, shortcuts that people took down here when they're building the house or, you know, installing something. So, yeah, to answer your question, it kind of runs in the family being super detail-oriented and thought out and doing things by design and with a purpose, you know, take your time, do it, do it right kind of mindset. What are some other things that you maybe picked up from your father or grandfather that you're trying to um, apply to your business and also just your family life? I think the the family life um, and taking the time with your family is, is first and foremost, you know, a lot of uh, my memories were focused around just being with the whole family, you know, a giant 20, 30 person um, gathering. And, you know, I don't think a lot of kids had that, you know, at least in, in my life, they didn't have that growing up. And trying to pass that on that, you know, family gathered around meals, holidays, and keeping it, it's, keeping it all together. It's, it's really easy to, um, to skip that portion. You know, the, being with a lot of people takes a lot of patience and, you know, it doesn't matter if they're family or not. It just, it takes a lot to keep that together, especially, um, you know, for, for your children through the eyes of a child, having that is for me, having that as a childhood, seeing all my grandparents together, being, um, on, you know, big hunting trips with my dad and grandparents. And, you know, even my mom would go shooting with us. She's pretty amazing shot with a pistol, you know, so we'd go plank and do things like that. Just having that family atmosphere. And the other thing is taking the time to teach and pass it along, you know, not necessarily everything that goes into a very specific fly or you know really anything in hunting or fishing but the lifestyle teaching the lifestyle that you know being out in the um in the woods or on the water um and just having everybody enjoy um each other's company Mm -hmm. is as crazy as that is but that's really what i focus on with lucy and susan and when my parents come down, we try to all go fish together or we'll, you know, cook a big meal together and everybody's in the kitchen. It's that togetherness. Mm-hmm. And I noticed in the beginning of the book, you dedicated it to your wife and daughter. And you even said, there's nothing I enjoy more than spending time tying flies with you both. And I know that it's important for you to try to intersect them into the things that you love or the things that were passed down to you. What tips would you give to fathers or mothers who love the outdoors and they want to bring and pull their family into the outdoors rather than using outdoors as an escape from family. Yeah, that's a tough one. You know, um, I struggle with that myself. Lucy doesn't always love fishing. She likes catching fish, but the, the patience level, um, to, to be on a four hour fishing trip, um, sometimes, uh, spoils it, you know, she, she gets really frustrated and when she gets frustrated, things start to deteriorate and then, you know, it's, it's hard for everybody. So I would say, 
um, baby steps as far as um, time blocks. Mm. Like when Lucy and I go out and fish um, or go cast, you know, I'm trying to teach her fly casting or tying. We do one fly or we do 10 minutes of casting or we'll go, you know, get a bait and I'll say, you know, we're going to fish one or two baits a piece. We set a hard stop so she can um, see the light at the end of the tunnel. If it's boring, then there's a way out for her. It's not that kind of dragging on. We're going to be doing this for hours at a time, you know. I, I just think it's hard for kids. Um, a lot of times, I've, you know, if we're sitting in a hunting blind, we, we bring activities, we bring a lot of snacks, you know, I don't. I try not to put her in situations where she has to be quiet. So duck hunting works really well for Lucy because she can talk to my dad or, you know, have a cookie and stand up and move around. Or mm-hmm. you know, it, it's just it's just a lot easier. You have to know what you're working with and find activities that complement um, your child or spouse or whoever you're trying to expose to the outdoors. Mm. Yeah, that's all helpful. And um, I definitely, with my daughter, who I have a daughter who's about to turn four, and then I have a daughter who's a newborn. And you and I have even had some fun conversations uh, trying to, we're both kind of thrown into homeschool. You know, we're kind of principals or teachers or PE coaches, all of the above of this season. And there's a lot of challenges with it, but I have really enjoyed watching my daughter even progress in the little things that I've got to see her learn, you know, in her curriculum and her education. And it's the same way with fishing. You know, she's, she's learning little things that we're going to build on just like in your fly time book and what we were talking about, you know, if we can learn some of these basics and move forward and be patient and enjoy the process. And, uh, that's, that's super helpful. Are, are there any, when it comes to teaching, I know that you, you're really into teaching your your daughter teaching through the books. Um, what are some some kind of core principles of being an effective teacher? And then what are maybe a couple mistakes to avoid? Uh, I'm by no means the the you know a master at this. I I learn you know new things every day. The more I teach um, groups of kids or my daughter or even people. Um, just trying to get into fly tying or cooking or anything I'm trying to teach them, uh, w- what I find is don't push. If you push people um, too hard or you try to do too long of a lesson, again, th- they get really frustrated. As soon as you see any any kind of frustration, you got to back off. Um, Lucy really likes to do flies her own way, which is good. Sometimes, sometimes I give her the freedom to say, Hey, you know what, just sit down and, um, we're going to, you can lash whatever you want to the, the hook. Usually it's a big glob of pink or purple feathers or something, but, um, yeah, Lucy likes the, the creative aspect, the artistic, um, part of fly tying, but sometimes I want to teach her a technique, you know, that she can utilize, on you know a bunch of different flies so you kind of have to take baby steps or itty bitty bites and say you know what we're going to do this pattern first and then you can use whatever feathers or materials you want to tie this pattern um to whatever you want it to look like so that way it's kind of you you meld the two Mm -hmm. um she and she learns the techniques otherwise she ties the same thing over and over again and you know there's no there's no branching out or learning it's just okay dad wants me to tie some flies with him let's go tie the same fly and then we're done Mm -hmm. now that's all helpful and I I was curious too you know what what is your kind of hope for your daughter as far as obviously we we all want our kids to be you know healthy successful and whatever they choose to kind of endeavor and but as far as the fishing industry side of things and the outdoor side of things, what are you hoping that she'll grow into be and get to see? Well, if she wants to be in it, great. You know, the, the path is paved a little bit easier for her than it would be someone trying to break in. Obviously, I've been lurking around the industry for more than a decade now, so I got a lot of contacts and things. But, it, you know, if she doesn't, I would hope that, 
she at least can enjoy being outdoors and with Susan and I. So when we travel and do what we love, which is, you know, exploring new locations to kind of eat, fish, hunt, we just kind of like to do that sort of gig, um, that, that she can be with us. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the last thing I want is her to hate the idea of, you know, going on a family trip where we're, where some portion of our time is going to be spent doing outdoorsy type things. So, mm-hmm. you know, if, if she likes the photography aspect of things, then at least she can be with us taking pictures or video, or if she does want to hunt and fish, then great. Um, you know, I'm trying to expose her to other females in the industry that hunt and fish as well. Um, I think a lot of it is just for little girls is seeing other women do it. Mm -hmm. You know, I think, you know, she kind of gets picked on at school sometimes that, you know, girls don't fish or girls don't hunt. And she just kind of laughs, you know, Mm -hmm. like (laughs) you, you clearly have no idea what you're talking about. So that's what I hope for her that, you know, that she'll be with us doing, doing this or some, some aspect of the outdoor activities with us. Mm -hmm. Cause because if not, it's going to be a, tough for her to be dragged along. Because we're, as soon as this COVID nineteen thing's over, we're traveling as much as possible. Yeah, and it's kind of neat too. I I didn't appreciate this as a kid, but I've grown to appreciate it more and more. Just the family tradition of things, and if you have the privilege of being from a family where this is something that's passed down to pass down to pass down. My great grandfather was a mullet fisherman in Tampa, Florida. And he taught things to my grandfather that taught things to my dad that taught things to me. And then now I find myself desiring to turn around and teach that to my kids. And, you know, I think when I was a kid, I didn't appreciate it for what it was. I didn't, I I think what it was more was I didn't realize the privilege that I had. You know, you said your, your father was a game warden when, when I was young, my father Uh, was a grandfather or grandfather. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And I didn't always appreciate the privilege it was to come from a family that just had these things passed down. And I think when you're a kid, you just, you know, that's typical, but I think she'll probably grow to really appreciate all the time that you invested with her and realize too. And I certainly realize this as a dad now, it, it's a lot easier to just leave the kids out of it. And yeah, it takes a lot of work. That's not a, it's not always the best way. It's the easy way, but, um, you know, you don't have to be have a parent that was uh, teaching you either. You know, some of my mentors, you know, obviously weren't family, and they they really got me on the path of tying or, you know, took my writing to, uh, to the next level. And I think, um, you know, you, you can be that in somebody else's life as well. You know, someone that they look up to and you, you start the, the path or the progression of passing it along. You know, Eric Leiser um, was, a, you know, a fly tying guru in the 60s and 70s. I think he's got 10 or 12 books as well. And um, he rolled into one of my fly tying classes at Bass Pro uh, many, many years ago. And I got to, to tie with him a little bit. I think he was in his 70s or, you know, late 70s, early 80s at the time. And he said, you know what, I'll teach you everything I know, but you have to promise that there's no secrets. And what that means is anything I teach you, um, I want you to openly pass it along. Hmm. Become become an educator, become a, a mentor, and, and, and pass it along. And that was kind of one of those moments for me, a fork in the road that took, took me to the, you know, where I am today was just, following his wishes and trying to teach and do the classes and the newsletter. I think I'm on 92 newsletters or something since I started this. Uh, But every month, you know, you're trying to give it away and pass that knowledge along. Hmm. And yeah, I mean, that's kind of the epigenesis of what, where I started. That's a great story too. And it's kind of interesting because it, there's a tension or it's somewhat uh, juxtaposed from other things in the industry where there's a lot of secrecy, you know, secrecy mm-hmm. about fly patterns or, and, and I certainly think we can all agree that 
when somebody works hard to put in the time and figure things out and experiment, there's something really enjoyable about all of that. But in the fly fishing community in particular, it seems, but I think it's across the entire outdoor community, there's a lot of secrecy and maybe a lack of wanting to share things. How do you try to yeah. work through that tension or, or balance that out? You know, it, it's funny you should mention that. I, I wrote an article um, about the Bowers crab uh, a few years back, and I kind of positioned it that fly tying is a lot like magic tricks. You know, there, there's that secrecy aspect of it that, that people that know how to do it don't want you to share. They don't want it out there because um, they're one of the few that know the real way or how to do something. And that's not going to really help our sport to, to grow. So mm. I just started, you know, hunting down those things that I thought that weren't, um, that weren't as visible and demystifying Bowers crab or other patterns, techniques that, you know, I couldn't find step-by-steps on. And I just flat out either figured it out or figured out someone who did know how to do it and then did the step-by-step and put it out there. Mm. You know, everything I've ever written is out there for free on my website. Mm -hmm. It's all there if you look. So I think, I think if we want to get, you know, if we want the industry of fly fishing to move forward, we have to dispel some of the myths that it's super hard or it's super elitist, you know, only the special, you know, evolved anglers can do it. You know, if you put a fly rod in a four-year-old's hand, it's going to take a little more work than a spinning rod. But once they figure it out, you know, anybody can do it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, it's all technique. Same with fly tying. You know, you teach those techniques early and try to, um, get them interested and build some good habits and, you know, techniques and they'll have it for the rest of their life. And I've even ran into a little bit of that tension with this podcast because I always want to respect things that people have worked to, to learn. And maybe they're particular about wanting to share certain aspects but you said something that I thought kind of stood out, which is that you want to see the sport grow or at least move forward. And I'm not sure that everybody actually feels that way, but what what would you try to say to persuade somebody to say, this is why we should really want to pass these things on and try to teach people the right way uh, to do it? That's something one of my mentors that I'm pretty close to, Harry Spear, who's in our area, has been teaching me a lot of different things. And, you know, he was a, an angler and, and a guide in the keys and has a long legacy in fly fishing. And he's always talking about, I want to, sh- I want to show people the right way to do things because if not, then they're, you know, inevitably going to, you know, at times do things incorrectly. What, what's the argument for it? What's the, I, you know, I think that if you teach people why you love it and what's so important and special about it, and, and they can see the value, then they'll uh, in turn help protect it as well. So it's not necessarily about the sport, but it's about where we do it. You know, the the fish, the water, everything else, the more people involved in it and that are passionate about it, they're going to be the ones that are also in turn um, helping to conserve and protect. So I, I think that for for Lucy and her kids and grandkids and future generations, it's kind of our job to pass it along. They might not not necessarily love it, but at least they'll respect it and understand why it's important to to preserve. Mm-hmm. So, I, I think that's the argument mm-hmm. of you know wh- why we're passing it along and trying to keep it safe and sacred. Mm. No, that's good. If it's okay with you, I have a long list of rapid fire topics to cover that. Let's do it. Bang them out. I I don't want to overhype this, but this is about as excited as I've got because you're involved and interested in so many different things. So let's go, let's go ahead and get rolling. Um, when I was researching, i I came across the, the boat video, the artisan, and I thought that that was a really great video. And I also thought that as I researched 
and kind of prepared for this, that that was a really great word to describe what you're pursuing. And I'm not sure if that's something that you chose, uh, a word that you chose, or if they chose it, but I'm going to read the definition uh, off the trusted internet. A worker in a skilled trade, especially one that involves making things by hand. And you said that your father was a woodworker. Um, you're a fly tire. You're very technical. You know, you make things by hand. Um, was that a word that you you aspire to? And what is so special about art? Is artisanship a word? You know, I, I definitely <laughs> didn't. I didn't choose that word. Um Boat came to me, and uh, you know Rob Maccabee is a good friend of mine, and he and I fished together, and um, we were out on paddle boards one day, and he's he just kind of stopped fishing, and I said, "What are you, what are you doing?" He said, "I I just want to watch you um, to fish for a while because what you're doing is your process is is really something very different," and then you know we we got home and. I said, all right, well, we had a bunch of guys together. Let, let me make some dinner. So I just started cooking, you know, ran out to the garden, cut some herbs and, you know, just kind of put the meal together. And he, he sat back and he said, you know, we're, we're doing like an artist series um, on these boards. And we're, I, I think that what you do and what you, um, you know, embody for goes very well you know, your, your style, the things that you're passionate about, um, you know, taking the time and, and doing kind of more of a artistic, um, take on things. That's how it all came about. You know, the, he, he's the, the art brains, um, at boat, he's the creative director and designer and his style is extremely, um, thought out and, he takes a lot of time and puts a lot of detail into things. Mm. So that that's where, you know, the that came from when when they kind of needed a title to tether everything together, all the aspects that he wanted to record. We had way more video than went in what went into that. We had, you know, fire table, you know, bunch of stuff of us just being together as friends we had family meal um you know just just trying to put it all together artisans seem to to work because the amount of passion that goes into those activities you know they say you know with food is love you know it takes a long time to cook for people and to and to cook you know high quality stuff it, it's it's a lot of work so I don't know. Gardening's the same way. They're all labors of love. These activities we do. So that's where it all came from. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I guess when I see that word, I mean, I aspire. I, I like that word, and I, I like kind of it has this countercultural aspect to it because we're oftentimes wanting things quick. We're wanting things instant. We want them done for us. You know, we want to outsource as much as we can. And, and in some sort of pursuit of productivity or efficiency. But the thing when I think of artisanship, I think of slowing things down and being really focused and fighting distraction. Mm, what, sure. what tips do you have for people who they need to, they need, maybe they even desire to slow down and to really try to learn how to fight distraction and kind of drown out the noise? Yeah, I, I guess it's, you know, you reap what you sow. So that there's a big movement going on, the slow food movement. You know, it's the folks that are cooking farm to table. They're sourcing high quality ingredients. They're they're doing it the, the hard way, the slow way. You know, they're not necessarily opening a jar of tomato sauce. They're, you know, blanching the tomatoes and stewing them down and, you know, d just doing things the 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 way that's going to give you the highest quality product um, as an outcome. And I think that's what it comes down to is what do you want? Do you want a guide fly or do you want something that you can photograph and put in a shadow box if you want or go, you know, throw it at snook in the backyard? For me, it's it's got to be both. I, I try to tie flies um, 
or I guess it's everything I do that you could you could do either with it. You know, I hold myself and my the stuff that I create to that standard, and I'm just I'm happier with the finished product, and I'm happier with you know someone saying, "Oh, Drew tied that." Yeah, I can tell for sure. You know, guy took the time to tie rubber knot the knots in the rubber legs, or you know, just went the extra mile. And I think that's what it's about. Mm-hmm. You know, just taking pride in what you do, pride in your work. Yeah, and thinking of slowing things down, I know you just wrote an ebook on stand-up paddleboarding and fishing from stand-up paddleboards. And uh, when I think about that type of fishing, you know, it's a it in my mind. I I, I think about a slower, more intentional Ooh, process. For sure. Is that what drew you to that? You know, it's 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 a lot like bow hunting. I'm really into. Um, silent stock being out in the woods um a buddy of mine said um he he hunts barefooted and he said you know if if you're if you need shoes you're going too fast you should be going slow enough to place each step and that's um so you don't step on something that's you're gonna make noise or hurt yourself Mm -hmm. um but that's what you know paddleboard fly fishing is for me a lot of times it's, you know, hunting and barefoot. You're moving slow enough to where the fish don't feel you. Um, a lot of times I bump snook. You know, if you came down the, the, the creek or, you know, some of these little estuaries with a trolling motor, you're still sending a bow wake. Mm-hmm. There's still a lot of noise and vibration. And it's just that being still you know, being, I, I, I guess, silent and, and purposefully not moving, you mm-hmm. know, it's, it's just a kind of a crawl and, you know, I have things set up. It's hard to, you know, um, to describe without showing people, but, you know, a lot of times you're moving with the speed of the water, you know, mm-hmm. you're not necessarily paddling. You might, you know, set the board up directionally and then coast for a bit but having your line stacked up in reverse having the fly in hand having um, an anchor at the ready or a stake pole so you can position yourself for the shot once you do see the fish but it's exactly what you said it's a much more um, it's a slower process you're not covering a ton of water I mean you could if you were paddling but if you are, you're you're spooking fish. So the style that I like to fish is, you know, as close to bow hunting as it could be. That silent stalk, mm-hmm. you know, one shot kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Trying to be patient, and then, you know, to me, one of the really attractive things about fishing and about hunting is just that I'm forced to slow down and. You know, my daughter is uh, about to turn four and she always, me and my wife always joke because she always sounds Jamaican when she says it, but she always goes, it's taken a long time, you know, and she, <laughs> she's whining about it. Uh, and she's it, anything, I mean, anything to her is taking a long time, you know, whether it's, it, it, you know, she can become really impatient. And I find myself just kind of struggling with that too, that like, it takes me time, you know, to decompress to where I can just do things slowly. Um, even I went on a turkey hunting trip this year with my father, which is a really great trip, tons of awesome stories and encounters with birds out, out in Georgia. And I found that usually my first day of a trip, um, whether it's like a trout fishing trip or a turkey hunting trip, I, I need, I almost need to like decompress and get used to moving slow because we're just, it's so easy to get caught up in the fast paced life that we, we often live where we're checking emails and we're running from meeting to meeting and we're trying to squeeze all this in and then all of a sudden now you're moving at the speed of the tide flowing in or out you know it 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 can be a challenge just to actually do that and get disconnected when you're out go ahead well yeah i was just wondering um what are some some tips that you can give people for just having a slow intentional process whether they're on a stand-up paddleboard or in a small a small skiff pulling I think you have to have the time set aside to allow yourself um, 
to decompress and to create that clarity. Um, I, for the, I mean, the first day in the Bahamas, every time I get over there for a strip strike university or just going over for a personal trip, the, the first day I'm always amazed by the deafening silence. And it, it sounds counterintuitive, but um, when you get out on the flat and all you hear is the waves or the water lapping up on shore or nothing at all, you know, it, it's kind of a deafening silence. It's, it's very strange. We're so used to the noise of everyday life. And I think if you prepare yourself and say, you know what, this is my day or my week or my hour to decompress and you just accept that, get on the paddleboard, take some deep breaths, you know, don't put your headphones on, get up early so there's not a lot of people on the water and just kind of soak it in. My favorite thing to do is drink a cup of coffee at 6.30 on my paddleboard when there's no one out on the water. Just look for baby tarpon or watch the birds, you know, the herons uh, or egrets poking around. A lot of times the manatees will come up to the board and check you out, but there's no noise and you you just have to you have to make yourself slow down mm-hmm. and and just kind of soak it up. Mm-hmm. What areas of life do you find yourself having to force yourself to slow down in outside of fishing? I'm a doer. Um I hate sitting still. Like if we go on vacation, my wife wants to sit by the pool and read a book. She could sit there all day. I cannot sit still um, to save my life. It it drives me nuts. I I like duck hunting um, because I'm doing something even though I'm sitting still. Same with deer hunting or, you know, if you're doing anything like that. So outside of hunting or fishing, making... um, like I, I, it's very hard for me to sit down and like read a book. I have to be doing something. So I try to um, always be doing something productive. And I think it's hard for my family to be around someone that's like always doing more than one thing at the same time. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of times it's hard to just be present if that's a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if, if everybody's doing one thing, um, like I can't, I can't watch a sports game. It drives me bananas. If everybody's sitting watching TV, like watching a sports game. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't know. I, I I don't know if that answers your question, but, um, no, that definitely does. I think that, um, there's an art to, to all of that too, and, and balancing it out and knowing how to move between moments where, you know, you need to be focused and slowed down in moments where you need to speed up, you know, like stress can be a really good thing. I, I, I heard it once put to me, like stress is really great when you're being chased by a bear, you know, yeah. you should be stressed, but you, but the problem is when that bear is chasing you all day, every day. And that kind of segues me into another question I had. So, you know, I know that you had mentioned when you were 25 and you're working in real estate and mortgage and all of that, that you were consuming high amounts of coffee and caffeine. I, I, I love coffee. I, I definitely, I'm in a season where I'm trying to tone back. I'm curious, uh, just on a, a health standpoint, what, what did you experience with the coffee and, and anxiety that comes with that? And what, what were the negative attributes and how did you try to wean yourself off of being so caffeine well, dependent? Well, f- first of all, let me say that I'm a huge coffee lover. If I could get a coffee sponsor, I would be all about that. They exist. Bo- both bo- <laughs> both barrels. That's that's the, the one thing that I'm missing because I drink a, an awful lot of coffee still. But um, definitely not a pot of coffee a day anymore. Um, at 25, you know, like I said, burn the candle at both ends. I had, you know, two, three companies going at the same time, 20, 30 employees at any given time, a lot of stress with, the um, you know, real estate deals and a lot of pressure with closings and things like that. Um, so I, I definitely was having heart palpitations at 26. I went to a cardiologist and they thought I was somebody's grandchild sitting in the, and sitting in the waiting room. They all asked me, you know, who are you here with? And I said, no, I'm here to see a doctor. So, you know, sitting in the waiting room and 
with a bunch of 70 year olds kind of was an eye opener for me. But the doctors, you know, they told me, listen, you've got way too much on your plate. You've got um, you're, you're trying to control way too much, way too many people, way too many companies, you know, just you're you're drinking way too much coffee and your stress is off the charts. So mm-hmm. either you need to get this dialed back or you're going to check out of the game real early. Mm-hmm. So, and that's been my personality. I mean, anything worth doing is worth overdoing. That's kind of the words I live by. Mm-hmm. So anything that I get involved in, I'm going to, you know, go wide open on. So I just had to, fortunately or unfortunately, the industry kind of fizzled back then, mm-hmm. which would probably saved my life. You know, I was forced to step back and, you know, do something else. Mm-hmm. And and there wasn't a whole lot to do for me. You know, I had to go get, you know, another job. I, you know, had a nine-to-five gig as a banker for a while, which <laughs> I could not do. Um, but, again, it just it forced me to prioritize what was important to me and where I wanted to see myself in 10 years or 20 years and, you know, what would I want to spend the rest of my life putting my passion into? And that's what it, that's what it came down to. Mm, That's interesting too, that you talked about trying to think long-term and where you see yourself in 10 years. Well, I had spent a decade building this thing, you know, going from graduating from college to owning all these companies and building it all up. And it wasn't really what I loved. Mm-hmm. It, it made money, you know, it, it, you know, I was my own boss, but it was definitely not something that I loved going to do every day. It was kind of like building your own prison one brick at a time. As terrible as that sounds, if you're not doing what you love, it's work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if you love what you do and you do it, 10, 12 hours a day, you look forward to doing it that, you know, every day becomes the same day. Cause it's, it's fun. That's, you know, you get up excited to go do it. And that's definitely not what I had back then. So I, I took a, a long, hard look at what I wanted to do. Um, and what was going to be sustainable for me. Cause I didn't want to put as much time and energy and passion into it. And then, 10 years from now, I'll be like, man, I never want to tie another fly or write another book or whatever it was going to be. I never want to do that again. Mm-hmm. What would you say to somebody who's listening to this and they're kind of in a similar circumstance? They feel like when you're describing where you're at, high stress, not what you wanted to do down the road with your life, and they know, man, this is what I'd love to be 10 years from now, 15 years from now. I'd love to be a guide or I'd love to own my own lodge or or make handcrafted artisan, you know, wooden duck decoys or whatever it may be, just a wide variety. Um, What would you tell them about making that leap? I would say it's, um, it's not really a leap because leap implies that you're jumping from one thing to the next. And that's not how it works. Um, Because you, you, you probably won't survive that. Um, I would say it's more of a plan. Write it down. Write it as, you know, put as much detail down as you possibly can and start laying out what what you need to accomplish that. What are going to be the hurdles? What do you have to do to overcome that? Um, if you want to own a lodge, you know, what, what's the financials look like? How much time do you have to have? Do you have to have land? Do you have to have a partner? Just just start building it out on paper and get it down and start working through it because without a plan, it's, it's just a dream. You know, if you have a plan, you can start chipping away at certain aspects and have little wins that are going to ultimately get you closer to whatever you want. And that's what it was for me. Um, you know, I said, I'm, I don't know what I'm going to have to do to get into the, the fly fishing industry, but you know, I'm going to do it. And the first thing I said was, oh, you know, what, what accomplishments can I do, um, you know, that, that don't require a lot of connections. Mm-hmm. And I just went and got certified as a casting instructor. I took that exam. You know, that was the first thing I did to kind of get my toe in the pond 
to you know in the industry. You know, I tried. I submitted a bunch of articles. I went to um, Barnes and Noble and I looked in the front of every magazine to see who the editors were in the magazines. I wrote them all down, email addresses, addresses, and I just started sending them stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, until I got one to bite. Because be- before that, you know, you don't really have a track record or resume of stuff that you've done. So you just have to act as if. You know, mm. start start doing as if you already were a commercial fly tire or as if you already were a writer. Put the articles together. Tie 50 flies. Take pictures of them and start building kind of that digital resume or collecting whatever whatever it is you want to do. You just have to start doing it. Mm-hmm. No, that's really helpful. So another question that I have for you is... I was really curious, you know, when you put together these books, these, uh, the, the tarpon book, the bonefish, the permit fly tying books, you know, in in the tarpon book, uh, there's 14, I think main patterns. Um, if I had to dwindle you down to where you could only fish one pattern for any species, it was just, it was, it was the one pattern that you're going to have the rest of your life. What, what would that pattern be? Uh, that's a tough one. Um, let's put it this way. If I had one for, uh, fish that are bottom feeders, bonefish, you know, redfish, tailors, it would be probably my, um, swamp cabbage or coyote, ugly shrimp, everything eats shrimp. Um, if it was snook, tarpon, sea trout, you know, upward facing morphology kind of fish would probably be my Tuscan bunny mm-hmm. or a, or a yak hair bait fish pattern. Cause I can change the colors to match up anything. That's kind of the blank canvas pattern. I know it's not one fly, but it's, it's really hard to, you know, say I'm going to catch the same, you know, bone fish is a, you know, and, and tarpon on the same fly, you know, um, I don't know. I, I guess, I guess those would be kind of my, my go-tos. Mm-hmm. If I only had one, one fish, it'd be snook, bar none. You know, I know there's guys that love tarpon and permit, and I love catching bonefish. I, I love those, but snook are what drive me bananas, keep me up at night. Hmm. So you and I are both uh, really in love with Traeger Grills, and they're one of the. <laughs> they sponsor a section of this show where I'm pulling together great recipes and trying to really kind of bridge the gap. One of the things they've done really well is they've, they've kind of found, they kind of put a, put a brand, they put a company that kind of connects with the outdoorsmen and, you know, outdoorsmen and women have always valued and loved cooking. Like that's always been hand in hand with it. You know, it's not just going out and catching a fish or, or hunting an animal, but also being able to prepare dishes together what is your favorite thing to cook on your Traeger grill? And can you give us a talk through about what that meal is going to look like? Uh, sure. Um, that's a, that's a tough one. I use, when I first got the Traeger, I wasn't sure how, you know, I was going to use a smoker in my daily routine. I, I mean, there's definitely applications. That I, I like things smoke, but I got to tell you, I, I use that thing four days a week now. Um, I, it's, it's a sous vide, it's an oven, it's a smoker, it's whatever you want it to be. You know, the, the more you use it, the better you get. And the more you realize it's, it's capabilities. That being said, the real clock, the, the, the crowd pleaser at our house is rack of lamb. And I get them at Costco. I know it's not one of those, uh, you know, I shot it myself kind of things or caught it, but that's an easy one. If I had venison, I'd do that or elk. Um, any kind of you know game meat, duck is awesome on there. But my favorite to do on a weekly basis is lamb. And what I do is I'll get the biggest ones I can get at um, at Costco, and I kind of trim out the fat and the silver skin, and get them. Um, you know, just prepped up, and then I coat them with some really good olive oil, salt and pepper, and then some oregano. Um, 
and I kind of interlace the bones and stand them up. If if you want, you can get fancy and do kind of a crown roast. You turn them backwards and then truss them together. But the easiest way is just interlace the bones so they stand up and toss them on the Traeger. Just really simple. I don't put garlic on them. It's just like just really good, simple ingredients. You know, you can get some some really nice finishing salts like black salt or a you know pink salt. Um, I I really like. Um, there's there's one that's a it's a salt blend with a little bit of thyme in it, that that and some good fresh cracked pepper and an mm. olive oil. It's just awesome. And they're, how, they're how done long quick. do you cook that? You know, it's really more of an internal temperature thing. Um, it, it's a high and hot application, so it doesn't take long. It a lot of the things that I cook take a couple of hours. Like if you if you do a whole chicken. Um, you know, it takes maybe two hours to get it up to the what they recommend the safe temp, uh, one sixty five. Um, but lambs way faster, mm-hmm. so that's probably my favorite. But if I had to pick a game meat, it'd be it'd be ducks. When we shoot a bunch of ducks, I kind of marinate them in you know pineapple juice, a little bit of orange juice, um, and then smoke them, and then we I'll do like a like a blackberry reduction with a little bit of bourbon in it and kind of drizzle that over the top and that stuff even to people that say they don't like duck that that's gone before it hits the table it, mm. people are elbow, elbow and boxing out trying to get in on that stuff do you have that recipe on your website by chance I don't I'll have to put it uh put it on there I've been working on a collection of recipes for years now I, a lot of my own, as well as um, uh, others from places I go, friends. I have a little journal that I travel with, and in that journal is recipes from the chefs at lodges or um, you know the, the 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 places that we you know eat out and or, or go to people's houses. I'll say, hey, you know, would you mind putting this in in your own handwriting? And someday when I publish my cookbook, I'm, I want to put it in there. Mm. So that's that's in the works as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I just finished another bonefish book um, for uh, this one's more focused on abacos flies. So as soon as I'm done with that and get it published and out there, then I'll have to take another look at that cookbook yeah. and see if I can get that going as well. Yeah, that's awesome. I love the handwritten thing. I, I've talked to you about trying to pull together the things that I'm learning on this journey. And that's one of the fun things that I am doing is kind of saving all of my chicken scratch and things like that, that I kind of encounter along the way, fun diagrams or, you know, how people set up their, uh, you know, their anchor systems and things like that. It's, it goes back to the artisanship thing too, of in a world where everything is three minute YouTube videos to see a body of work that has photos and instructions and stories, I think is, it, it, it just is such a great contrast in our life today. So I look forward to that. I will definitely buy that book, um, and add it to my collection. It's funny, the value, um, maybe it's just for me, but the, the personal value having something that's in the original handwriting when, when my grandmother died, you know, they were going through her house and said, oh, you know, do you, you want this or do you want that, that piece of furniture? And I said, no, the only thing I want are her paintbrushes for my daughter who loves to paint. She was a botanical illustrator and I want her cookbook in her handwriting. She had this, you know, almost calligraphy style handwriting, all her original recipes in a binder. Mm. That, that was what was most important to me was just having that. And I, I scanned it and made copies and sent it to everybody, but just having her original recipes in her own handwriting was invaluable for me. Hmm. Well, my last question for you is if you were going to publish a billboard and there was going to be one big billboard that every angler had to see uh, whenever they were driving, what would that billboard say? (sighs) Um... My grandfather said something to me before he died. He had a, 
brain cancer, and he didn't recognize recognize anybody at the end. I think I was like 13 years old, and um, I'd caught a landlocked salmon on a fly I tied, and my grandmother let me walk it up into his bedroom, and he sat up in bed, and he spoke my name and said, nice fish, and then he said, um, you know, very, very rarely did he have any sort of clarity, but he said, everyone, you go, go fish, because every trip you miss is one you'll never get back, mm. and, and that resonated with me. I mean, to a, to a point where today I can still hear the words in my head, you know, every trip you miss is one you never get back. And I think that would be kind of the, what I, what I would put on there is get out there and do it now. You never know what life's going to deal you or what's going to happen. And in, in the end, all you really have is the memories and experiences so the more you can do and get out there with your friends and family and just experience the outdoors, whether it's hunting or fishing or whatever you're doing, go do it because everyone you miss is one you're never going to get back. Hmm. Well, that's a great way to end it. And thank you so much for giving us some time today. And I'll make sure in the blog post to just include some of your books, the, the video that we mentioned, um, the recipe that we talked about. I'll kind of include all of that in the blog post. But Drew, thanks so much for your time. You've been really generous to share with us and we really appreciate it. Of course, it was my pleasure. Thanks again for listening to The Captain's Collective. Please help us out by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast. We hope that you enjoy This is The Captain's Collective.